0: Greetings, I'm Tricia Kuffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today I have a special guest for you. Her name is Jane Hutton. She is a landscape architect and assistant professor at the School of Architecture at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. The book is reciprocal landscapes: stories of material movements. So, Jane, thank you for the sh- thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with: uh, can you tell the audience your motivation for writing this book?
1: Sure. Um, I think the motivation for this book comes from comes from when I was practicing and specifying materials in landscape architecture, and really just having so many questions about where everything was coming from and finding it really interesting to, to learn about the sources, but also finding it difficult to find that information. Um, and so, you know, at the most basic level, the book is about, um, one about trying to, trying to see construction materials as more than products for a single use and trying to think about them as connected to forests and quarries and factories and workers and landfills and all of the other, the other spaces and landscapes that they make up in their
0: lifetime. And so how is the book structured? How do you approach the subject?
1: So the book is um, structured, there's five chapters and each chapter follows a different construction material from um, the, and each of these construction materials ended up in a important public landscape in New York City. And so I basically trace that material back to where it, you know, one of the places that it came from. Um, and then uh, the chapter is about trying to find links between this faraway, distant, usually kind of unknown material source, and then the place where it ended up. And these um, these chapters span over the last 150 years. So the earliest chapter is uh, starts in the late um, 19th century. So thinking about Central Park and the fertilizers uh, that were used in the original construction of it. And then the most recent chapter is about um, tropical hardwood or eBay lumber that was used in the High Line in, you know,
0: 2009. So, so what are you, I'll just start with the introduction. You've got materials in motion um, and so, what are materials in motion and and how does that relate to landscape projects? What, what do you hope that people take away from that
1: mm-hmm. yeah so the the aim is to or for me you know pers- my personal aim is to is to try to think about materials not as in one in one state or to to try to think about materials not just as commodities, not just as things that we buy um, but that they are actually connected to other places that they've been other places that they have their own inherent values apart from um, the way we might want to use them. Uh, so that section materials emotion motion is about trying to, um, you know, setting up the book to, to follow these trajectories or these different paths that these materials take.
0: And, and what paths? Uh, what kind of paths do they take? Um, how I didn't think about it. For I was reading your book, and um, you know, all we do is just just shift. We're just shifting everything around.
1: Yeah. So I mean, it was something that I, I like thinking about is is not only you know people are shifting materials around, but but everything is you know everything is moving. If you think about mountains moving and erosion and all of the all of the the constant flow of of materials and so i think in the book i'm trying to think about human directed material flow so the buying and selling and uh, extracting and exploiting and tending of landscapes and and the moving of materials in that regard but also the way in which you know all matter is is moving on its
0: own you know for its own purposes as well okay so in your first you've got uh Five material movements traced in this book. Let's start with, uh, you said Peru to Central Park. How did Peru get in Central Park? So
1: Peru, so it's actually a very, very small trace material, small amount of um, Peruvian guano, which is dried bird poop. um, That was uh, specified. So Olmsted, when he's setting out the original spec for, um, for the lawns in Central Park, some of the lawns in Central Park, he's using a whole bunch of different, uh, soil amendments. There is a lot of, um, composted horse manure, you know, the whole city is covered in horse manure at the time. So there's lots of that there's night soil. So human manure that's being composted in the park and then being used, um, to fertilize the soils. But there's also a lot of, um, other things being used, including new product, new, more processed, um, and, purchased and kind of mineralized, uh, fertilizers. And one of those that's, that's starting to gain popularity in the broader, like, so I guess another thing that's happening at the time is, is farms are expanding. There's kind of the, the industrialization of farms, which are responding to larger urban populations, um, and so those farms start to apply and experiment with much more a higher potency, uh, more stable fertilizers. Besides, you know, beyond farm manures, and one of those that that starts to take hold is is guano. And one of the major sources for global guano was um, the these this archipelago called the Chinchas Islands off of uh, off of coastal Peru. And so um, at this time, there becomes a a very dominant trade of uh, Peruvian guano to north kind of urbanizing North American regions but also Europe and um, it's you know a very small amount of this of this guano was used in in Central Park, but it I think I included in the in the book because I think it's a really critical moment in which um, the whole notion of a metabolic cycle within a city and within a farm is, is radically changing and, and Olmsted's on the cutting edge and he is thinking about um, farming in general. He's, he's wanting to experiment with everything, you know, that's available. So he uses
0: it as well. Oh yeah. I didn't realize it till I saw the pictures in your book, I guess, you know, just in our day and age, Rita, we grew up in the age of cars that you had those streets with all the horse manure on it. I was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing. There was there were piles and piles of manure all over the place. And so literally big parts of the park were um being used as as places to deposit uh excess manure.
0: And 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 at night too. So this is creating quite a landscape in New York City too, that they're like rearranging and people made a living out of moving, let's always say, poop around.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of pre um pre-household plumbing. And so what's and what I think is really interesting about this time for someone looking at it, you know, from our time, is the fact that at that moment, um, you know, people were a lot more comfortable and used to the idea that that poop was useful, you know, that it was that it was part, part of soil fertility. Um, and so it was really common, you know, commonly understood that people would be removing uh, human manure, and it would be going being brought to the periphery or to or being processed into what they called poudrette, you know, kind of mixed with some clay and dried up and made into a powerful uh, fertilizer. And it was uh, just this moment when they're when the city is really expanding, and there's a lot more urban waste, you know, of all kinds, and a lot of it was it was kind of very obvious that you would try to do something with it that was productive and that would be tied to local organic cycles, which I think is pretty, you know, it still obviously still happens in lots of ways, but it's pretty far from our urban imaginations today.
0: Yeah, especially that. It's like, huh, wow. I wonder what the city smelled like back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, we think it smells bad now. I can't imagine what it was back then. <laughs> Okay, so let's go from Granite uh from Maine to Broadway. How does rock move around?
1: Yeah, so that that chapter is takes place in the 1890s and it's about um you know at that moment in time there's a lot of emphasis on the hardening of the streets of of Manhattan. There's uh there's an idea that the you know repaving is going to allow for capital to flow more smoothly, and so there's a lot of reinvestment in in hardening and kind of smoothening the surfaces of the street. And so at the same time, there's also a lot of really important government buildings, um, sculptures, kind of noble you know urban artifacts being constructed. And granite is the best you know best most plentiful most beautiful material that that everybody wants to specify, including for paving. And so, a lot of this granite is coming from New England quarries, and quite a lot is coming from Maine. And so, in this chapter, I'm looking at um, uh, Vinyl Haven in the Fox Islands, and which is an archipelago that's really, you know, right in the water. And so, there's a really convenient, uh, or it's very easy to, to quarry the stone and get it right into boats as they're going down the Atlantic seaboard. Um, and so, tons of material was 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 leaving Maine and heading uh, to many cities, but also uh, New York. And this chapter looks at um, specifically the labor kind of agreements and disruptions that are, that occur over granite. So at the time, the, the granite workers in Maine were one of the, were were kind of the center point of organizing um, to create a granite cutters union and which was the first in the States. Um, And the chapter talks about an event in in 1892 when there is essentially um, a lockout and strike in Maine, and it it discusses the um, the kind of solidarity movement of workers in New York City who were paving layers and different people associated with constructing the streets who who essentially strike in solidarity with the Maine quarry workers. So in some ways, the the chapter is about. Um, about the way in which labor
0: solidarity is kind of expressed over space. Now, why did they decide to start doing granite? Was it for aesthetic reasons? Was it for cars? What was it for? It
1: was for um, it was for uh, aesthetics, but also um, kind of smoothness. You know, there was a real there was a real idea that the bumpy roads. I mean, it's kind of just dis- described as right there's there's actually a photo in the book or a, a drawing in the book um, showing people on on carriages kind of getting bumped all around and and there was this idea that the that the bumpy road was not suitable for a kind of major capital um, or a major you know center of of urban delights and that it was kind of distasteful for for people visiting and we needed more order in the city and we needed more um we needed things kind of goods and services to be able to be moved more smoothly so so there was a you know a strong and persistent idea that that infrastructure is is really directly tied to economic well-being and so that was one of the motivators i think that
0: that made that that be a time of of repaving and kind of focus on the smoothing of the streets i guess it's kind of like the shocks in our cars now we 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 expect a smooth ride now but yeah. That would, yeah. Okay. Now you got carriages going over manure and it's like bumpy yeah. and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It yeah. <laughs> boy, I'm kind of glad I live in 2020. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So steel now, what is steel? How they extract it from the environment? Why was it important? You've got it from Pittsburgh mm-hmm. to Riverside park.
1: Yeah. So here, um, I'm looking at steel that was used to cover the open tracks in Riverside Park as in the 1930s, as part of the renovation of Riverside Park, and um, I'm focusing on the carry Furnaces in Pittsburgh, um, which was the you know the the blast furnaces that are that are processing material um, through for U.S. Steel that's coming from uh, all over the place, but especially. Um, or from Minnesota and um, limestone and coking coal from Pennsylvania. And the, yeah, the chapter looks at both the Carrie furnaces and Riverside Park are both right on major rivers. And so it kind of looks at their evolution t- side by side. Um, one as in, in Pittsburgh as a really central industrial uh, riverfront. And then in, um, in Riverside Park as a, as a space that's starting to become more gentrified and more um, focused, kind of deindustrialized and more focused towards recreation.
0: Oh, well. So um, with steel, I mean, what, did, would you focus in the book on any like environmental consequences of um, these materials?
1: Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that you see, if you, you know, look at the, these two rivers, so the Monongahela river versus the Hudson river um, is that as you know, in the same moment in the century in Pittsburgh, the as as the steel really starts to crescendo and become a, a major industry, the the water quality of the river is really, really atrocious. Um, and that only later in the century, when um, when a lot of the steel works shut down, does the air you know, people start to see the air and the water clearing up. And so um, maybe that's, at least in the book, that's one of the, the registers of, of
0: industrial, of the steel industrial kind of impact on the immediate environment. Yeah. Did you find in your material movements, um, did you study like, yeah, the, the impacts of like all this moving material around and, you know, the um, environmental and, and monetary and, you know, is it, is it worth it to move around all these materials?
1: I mean, I think it's hard, it's hard to say what's what's worth it necessarily. I mean, I think you can, as a whole, if you look at the last century or two, it, you know, this material movement is the basis for for every for for the economic system, for all urbanization, for all construction. You know, everything that that um, is being built is being built with with ores from around the world and, you know, kind of these, these resources that are all exploited um, and often from kind of limited resources. So I think we can draw, you know, you can, you can definitely see how these patterns have, have produced the world that we live in now, which obviously has some really major crises in terms of, um, you know, climate crises, but also um, inequities, inequities in terms of who, you know, whose Whose homes are impacted in in these relation these global relationships of exploitation? You know, whose land is hurt, whose health is compromised, whose uh, who is not compensated fairly? All of I've, all of these things, I think, are you know they're huge they're huge realities that obviously are difficult to um, I certainly can't can't you know i don't provide any kind of comprehensive overview of that but but i think through looking at these very specific material cases in all of them you see um there's there's really very there's really very few cases uh that don't involve some kind of uh pretty intense environmental change labor inequities um
0: you know etc we yeah etc yeah um okay, so we got chapter four is trees from Rikers Island to 7th Avenue. So this is getting to landscape architecture. What about the trees?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the trees. Um, Yeah, so this chapter looks at, so this is around the late 1950s and it's a moment of time in the city when there's a lot of municipal disinvestment. Um, uh, And um, the chapter looks at a... Community-driven tree, major tree planting in um, on Seventh Avenue north of Central Park in Harlem, and the trees that are supplied by the city are coming from um, a Parks Department nursery in on Rikers Island, which for several for a few decades was producing the majority of street trees, uh, street tree nursery stock for the entire for the entire city. Um, and was a, a a kind of plan when Rikers Island was being developed as a like large penitentiary complex. It was a plan that that Robert Moses uh, cracked up with, um, or as as kind of part of that, which was to build a large municipal nursery that would supply the city with with trees to spec. You know, and the the, the chapter focuses on the London plane tree because that was everybody's favorite street tree at the time. Um, so the majority of, of, uh, of, um, trees being produced in the beginning were London plain trees. There were lots of others as well. Um, and the idea was to produce trees that could really live in the, on the city streets and, um, to be, and that they would be produced very cheaply because they'd be, they would be tended by unpaid incarcerated workers. Um, and so it was kind of you know the city saw it as like a as a win-win situation, but of course, there's there's more to that that you know there's more to that story as well. Um, and I guess the 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 short the short story of that is that this nursery produced uh, tens and tens
0: of thousands of trees that now kind of make up a lot of the mature canopy of the city. Oh, wow, help you. So now we kind of gone from. Yes. Smelly streets to like paved streets. And now we're bringing the forest back into the city. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that you really don't know, you know, there's, there are some records of exactly which species were planted where, um, but you, yeah, you don't, they don't have tags. They don't, you know, they don't necessarily say how, how old they are, but, um, but we know that a lot of them
0: were produced from this, this, um, this island well did you find in some of these material movements it made me think of a question um you know is is uh the material you know how is it like in fashion out of fashion or the street trees like you said people really like right now and then their you know i don't know aesthetics change and then they bring in something different
1: yeah definitely so that was one of the i guess one of the deciding factors for how how i selected materials at certain times because i think they you know they have they have their moment. And I guess that this, uh, as street trees were starting to be formalized, like maybe in the um, thirties or the mid century, there was a love for this particular species because it just was so hardy and it could handle pollution and you could kind of lock a bike to it and you could, you know, kind of just have this real roughness to it. Um, But if you, or in the, in the book, I was able to talk with the person who's in, in charge of, um, of street sheep planning today. And now, you know, inst- at the it, let's say in the mid century, there were, there were like four favored species. Now they're, you know, they're growing 200 and they really, um, the, the parks department really thinks about the city, not just as like one in one type of biological condition. They think about it as many, many different, um, different ecological conditions that, that can support very, you know, a huge diversity of different types of trees. So that's a, you know, a really a huge shift in the way you might think about, or in the way people have thought about trees in cities.
0: Oh, well that, that places the next one, uh, tropical hardwood from Northern Brazil to the Highline. Well, I, am here in Key Larca. We have a lot of, um, well, my favorite hardwood trees, it's a legum vitae tree down here in the Keys and, um, and I was amazed at when I did some research down here to all the hardwood trees and how they're used in different places. Um, why and how did they take the hardwood to the high line?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, Ipe, so it focuses on Ipe and it really is. Ipe is just a f- fabulously rot resistant, super hard, uh, you know, completely beautiful wood that, um, that stands out in terms of its performance in, in cold and wet places. And so it's really, you know, it's been a favorite species, favorite type of wood for people to use for, for a couple decades or more. Um, and I think what the, what the chapter looks at is the, you know, the or like, why, what, what is it about the way that tree grows? Or it's actually a couple species. Um, what is it about the way that those, trees grow that produces such amazing physical properties. Um, and one of the, you know, some of the aspects of how those trees grow is that they're, they're, they're very slow growing and they grow very sparse sparsely. So you, you find them, you know, not all clumped together, but very separated. And so that, you um, that reality, and it's also actually that you know the the slow the slowness of the growth that that contributes to its amazing the properties that we love you know like the hardness of it. It was so hard that the U.S. government considered using it as like um, you know ball bearings. It's like really really tough stuff. And um, yeah, so the chapter looks at how these really unique ecological growing conditions produce this commodity that's really loved, but also the extraction of it, um, you know, you can only take so much uh, before, uh, be, I guess, because it, it grows so slowly. So the installation of the, um, of the eBay in that first phase of the High Line was demonstrated against by a group of uh, climate change activists who were wanting to call out um call out the city for for like encouraging or or enabling the procurement of, of slow growing tropical hardwoods. Um, and so they were, I guess, part of a movement, uh, of advocacy that, that ended up influencing the procurement um, practices, uh, to the point where the city has made some, you know, some adjustments to their, to their practices and are limiting, um, the procurement of slow growing hardwood tropical hardwoods for uh parks projects hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line.
0: Well, I guess it's kind of a conundrum. I guess I was thinking about you're talking about it, is that, you know, if you want a project to be durable and be sustainable, you want to use something like that, but you don't want to, but you don't want to also, you know, strip the land of all the hardwoods either.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's a real, I mean, exactly. That's, I would say that the comment that you just made is something that comes up constantly in that, in this book. But I think just generally, uh, for designers as they're specifying materials, which is that there is really no, there are a few, very, very clear answers, you know, like there's usually a contradiction somewhere because somebody wants to choose a material that's going to last, you know, that's, that is, you know, making something that's going to stick around is obviously a really important, um, uh, agenda and so and there's so many there's so many different pieces to a construction project like how how long is it going to last that means not only um not only do you get to kind of maintain that material for longer in, in use, but all of the labor that's required to install it, all of the other, you know, kind of uh, efforts that are required to fix something or maintain it. Um, so I think that the fact is these, these questions are really, they're really complex and they really don't lend themselves to a, to a single best answer always. Um, so I think my I guess my agenda was is really just to to get to know more you know to try to understand a little bit more about about um, these materials and some of the com- some of the contradictions and complexities in in in
0: what it means to work with them. Well, I guess on one on one note, it's like if it, it is more ecological to have something that lasts longer.
1: Yeah, I mean for sure there are a lot. I I think that's a really. That's a really important principle.
0: Um, And that, well, let's go into What are some of your favorite case studies uh, that you found with these materials?
1: I mean, I think I, I just really love this, the process of, of kind of doing the detective work. And for all of the, for all of the cases, I would typically end up or like kind of start up with just a vague notion of, of a certain material I was interested in. And then, I just had no idea where it was going to end up. I had no, you know, I just kind of follow it to see where it, where it came from. And so I'd say maybe more than any in particular, I just really enjoy that um, the unknown aspect of that research. And I guess like, you know, the the Rikers Island case is an example of like, I just had no idea that I would have, I would have never been able to, it's not, it's actually not something that, um, it seems like is very well known that the existence of that tree nursery, it doesn't exist anymore. In the eighties, the um, Rikers Island just swelled hugely with the increasing incarceration rates. Um, And so the, the nursery was shut down and moved elsewhere, but I just, you know, had no clue that that existed. And, and even when I went to talk to the parks department, there were the people there who said, yeah, it's, you know, we hardly hardly even know about this. Um, So I like the fact that, that like you can pretty much look all around you wherever you're looking and, and kind of identify any object or any material. And it's going to lead to something kind of interesting, kind of interesting, kind of unknown and it will lead to another place. You know, it leads to another looking at my couch here and the fabrics that are on my couch and, uh, starting to think about the fibers, you know, the plant or, or, uh, petroleum-based fibers that are in this couch and leads me to start to think about, you know, those as actual places, those as actual landscapes. Um, and I think that's, for me, that's, that was the, the fun thought experiment of the book.
0: Well, yeah, I guess it's true. I was just thinking, it's like, well, no matter what park you're sitting in, uh, everything there comes from somewhere being molded and, and moved around, whether it's dirt, trees, or even, yeah, the benches.
1: Yeah. And and sometimes there's a, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about landscape architecture is that it's always a mix or usually a mix of things that are brought in, but also hybridized with the ground, you know, like the site is always also the design, you know, the site is always a big part of, of uh, the construction. So whereas maybe in some other forms of design or even in a lot of architecture you're really importing or bringing bringing materials onto a site whereas in landscape you're bringing things on but then you're mixing them up with with things that are there and I think and it gets it gets uh you know messy and and multi-layered in a really interesting way. Do you have a favorite material? Um I don't know. Hm. I mean I I love wood. I really I just it's just amazing. I think maybe one of the things that I that I really love about working with wood is just um how how it allows you to see this connection between a living being and this material. It's so alive, you know, it's like it's moving so much, it it shows you branching patterns, it shows you uh it kind of reveals a lot about how it came into being, even when it's, you know, even when it's pretty domesticated into a two by four and that that to me is like endlessly interesting.
0: That's true. I was just thinking, I've got a, a fake little desk right here with my little TV stand and uh, for this interview. And then I've got like my real wood desk sitting here. And yeah, so all these probably interesting stories about uh, its growth and et cetera and probably all different places it came from.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just, I feel like there's no end to just staring at things and kind of trying to imagine. Oh, Yeah.
0: Who are you? There's a story from all of it. Um, Well, well, in your studios at school, how do you use this book uh, to teach your students about materiality and, uh, you know, its usefulness and and how they're going to be using it in in their future professional life?
1: Yeah, I've taught some classes where we do, where the students do um, research that's quite similar to, to what I did in the book. So basically start, you know, they'll pick a, a material and trace it and try to understand the ecological impacts and historic, you know, history of labor associated with them. Um, and that's been super interesting. I mean, I've learned so much from them. Um, but I guess I've also, you know, have worked with different students who are doing independent thesis research about, you um, you know, deconstruction materials, uh, I guess, exper- you know, experimental practices of imagining. Um, like, what if we couldn't, you know, what if we couldn't import everything? What if we really had to, to, to design and construct with what is on site? So I, I think, um, you know, some of these experiments of, of, of just looking more closely at what's already there and what can be made with it is is a something that i find really interesting and like to bring into teaching. Uh,
0: well in that case uh, yeah next how can professionals maybe uh use this in their book and and you know talk to clients about materiality um etc and use some of these stories maybe in their design?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a I'm I'm curious. I think that that I mean i think a lot of designers do. They do a lot of advocacy um for I think in the process of working with clients, they're they're often advocating for what for their for their values, and I think, uh, you know, whether that's to increase biodiversity or create better public space or whatever that might be, and I think, um, yeah, I think that that, and I'm sure lots of lots of people do do this, but that it can be a powerful thing um, to think about material and kind of have conversations with clients about materials, not just as what they are in that moment, but also, you know, what they have been or what they will be in the future. So to really think about these different, different stages of life. And I think, you know, we are used to that in terms of historic preservation, or we're used to that in terms of maybe local materials, people really saying, no, we want to, you know, we want to use these things because they're coming from nearby. So I think that's that's something that a lot of people are interested in right now, and I can imagine um, that clients that professionals work with are also more tuned into the the why that's important or what what kind of value that might add to their projects. I, I mean, one thing, one analogy that I often or that often comes up in relationship to this project is the the system of slow food or local food, which is something that's so you know, prevalent now, everybody is used to asking like, well, you know, where do my food come from and, and what do I think about that? And so I guess it's, it's a, the kind of construction or design um, version of that, you know, like what, why does it matter? What are the impacts? Uh, what kind of, in addition to having less negative impacts, what kind of interesting ideas or relationships can you can you support by
0: by really thinking about the the paths of the materials that you're using is is there anything else but you could like do like a whole encyclopedia on every like material from a site
1: that would be great i have to work a little faster (laughs) it takes me takes me a really long time so um but yeah i again like i just i find it endlessly interesting just because there's no there's no limit you know like it's
0: like everything Everything has a story. Well, Kitch, is there anything else that you'd like to add about this book that you'd like the audience to know about?
1: Hmm. I mean, I think I, I think I touched on a lot of it. I mean, I hope, I hope the audience checks it out and uh, love to hear any any comments at
0: any time. Yeah, I mean, you did a, a great job. You know, everything is you got all the uh, research notated and and all these really like old pictures and stuff. You, you did you like travel to the archives to get all these old pictures? I did a lot of
1: archives. Yeah. And I love, actually, that was a real pleasure of this project. Um, uh, yeah. And, and kind of basically for each of these five, five cases, you know, there's very different arc, they're, they're happening in different moments in time. So they have very different qualities of information or qualities of photography, you know, for example, in the thirties, the photography is like just incredible. It kind of goes downhill after that, but, um, yeah, it's interesting to do a project that's really across time because you see such a wide range of ways that people are writing and documenting sites.
0: Yeah, the photographs—it's all black and white, and uh, it, it's an amazing, even just kind of a, a cultural uh, history of, uh, of evolution and um, of cities too—the uh, urban city and and the rural areas.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's um, that's a good point. That's the point I should have I should have said when you asked me if there were other points. I think a big part of the project is about really just trying to make clearer these connections between um, between what we think of as the urban, which is I think often what gets a lot of attention, especially in the design disciplines, and then the other place, which is like foggy to to many of us, and so. The whole, yeah the the underlying um agenda was to really try to bring those close together to to try to explore the ways
0: they're actually very
1: linked kind of impossibly impossible to un unlink
0: yeah just uh, the the rule and, and now it's it's becoming uh, the the urban forestry movement that's become so popular now um and how it's all just kind of meshed together mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: um' is, is, I'll, I'll put it, Is there any other points you'd like to add to the book? Give me one more chance. I think, I think you got, got it? it. I think yeah. so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a beautiful book. I tell you, it's it's a beautiful book. It's and uh, yeah, just on each of these, we we could talk forever about each one of these little tiny um, uh, materials and, and where they come from and how they get used. And I was just saying, it's like, wow, this could be like a great way to storytell um, a site.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like the, I like the way you're putting that.
0: So, well, um, Jane, thank you so much for being here today and taking the time out to be here. Um, what are you working on now?
1: I am working, I'm starting to think um, a bit more about an aspect that is in this book. I guess it's maybe closely related to the trees chapter, which is the notion of maintenance Um maintenance and landscape architecture and all of the kind of human care that goes into keeping sites alive and I guess the horticultural work of that. Um, and so I'm thinking about that and researching about that in relationship to, um, to the notion of a just transition or kind of post, you know, post fossil fuel focused society uh, so that's really, you know, just getting started, but I'm also, um, really interested in starting to do some work about material reuse and, and deconstruction. So those are, those, that's where I'm
0: at right now. Oh, well, this is great. Yeah. I, I like the book and, and, uh, thinking about materials and, uh, just getting a start on, uh, on how sites go together, uh, et cetera. So, well, thank you so much for being here today. And again, I'll tell the audience that this book, you got to get it. It's Reciprocal Landscapes, Stories of Material Movements by Jane Hutton, published by Routledge in 2020. And I'm Tricia Keffer from Sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening.